How do I find my reader? How can I better understand my genre? What genre am I even writing in? These are questions I have been bombarded with recently. And I talked about this a little bit in my episode, How to Find Your Reader. And in that episode, I talked about an amazing tool for getting to know your readers better and understanding the market better. And it's called Kalytics. And in that episode, I just mentioned the name and sent you to the website. But this episode, we're going to talk about what Kalytics is and how you can put it to work for you. This is going to be helpful for indie, traditional, both published and published of both fiction and nonfiction. So stick around. This is one for everyone. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. And as we talk about Kalytics, I like to think of it as one of those secret weapons that separate successful authors from struggling authors. And it's kind of like the windshield that allows you to see what's going on on the road as you're driving down the road to keep you from making really painful mistakes. And our guest today, who knows quite a bit about Kalytics, I used to be a management consultant. He would put together uh, research reports and investigations for big Fortune 500 companies to help them make good decisions. And now he's putting those market research skills to use for authors. So Alex Newton, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Hey, Thomas. Hello. Now, we've had you on several times before to help talk about trends in the industry, and we're going uh, to get to that. So if you're wanting to hear what's hot right now with readers, we will talk about that. But first, I want to answer the question, what is Kalytics? Well, what is Kalytics? If I only knew after six years running it. No, joking aside, first of all, let's start with Kalytics. It's, it's basically a term that evolved out of Kindle plus analytics because we started back in 2014 analyzing the kindle platform but since i didn't want to get into trademark disputes on day one when i was almost ready to launch calling the whole thing kindleytics my lawyer said no you don't want to do that so we ended up with k analytics taking out the indle from the kindle and here we are with kalytics and what we do is we monitor the amazon kindle market in the main and we monitor thousands, thousands of books and covers and you name it and crunch the numbers and try to distill them into insights so that you can make better and faster publishing decisions or decisions within your writing project. And uh, we crunch those num- numbers for one reason, so that you don't have to and that you can focus on the writing. This is this is what we do in essence. So people are always curious, what are people reading? Well, that data is out there. The challenge is collecting the data which requires a lot of scraping of Amazon. <laughs> and But then it's not just collecting the data, it's also analyzing and interpreting the data. And I think that's the bigger challenge because it's easy to get a bunch of spreadsheets and charts and graphs and it's like, how is this useful? And for a lot of authors, I'm like, this isn't going to help me write a better book. So how does Kalytics help somebody actually understand their genre and understand what readers are wanting to read? Well, first of all, you you just said it. There, there is an overwhelm of data and information out there in the first place, right? I mean, you have your own spreadsheets. There is whatever your Kindle dashboard. There is bestseller lists on Amazon, and they get polluted. And there's stuff in there that's not relevant. And then you have so many sources of information. But 
it's or sources of data, I shall say. And there's a process from getting from data into information and then compile the information in the way so that it triggers some action or some decision making on your part. So let's make a very concrete example to to just illustrate what I mean. Well, you can say you search something on Amazon and you say, well, I'm interested in billionaire romance for argument's sake. So you type in billionaire romance and you get probably 30,000 plus search results. Amazon is not going to show all of them to you, but they they will show you some 6,400 of them. And these will also change over the days and what is hot on one day may change on the other day. So what I'm telling you now, you would have to, to get to a picture that reflects, say, the truth or the average of performance. You would have to repeat the exercise like every couple of weeks, which is would be very tedious. But a very concrete example would be all of these books that Amazon suggests to you are suggested for a reason. And by the way, if you type a search, the books are not necessarily sorted in, in order of sales. But what the algorithm does, they will also suggest books to you that have nothing to do with billionaire romans. So the first thing that is a lot of work is getting to the data of the books, but also cleansing the data. Now, once you've built that database, you can ask all sorts of questions such as, well, what what is the typical character, the male protagonist? What, what is the highest selling one? Because mind you, every book comes with a sales rank. That sales rank changes by the hour and over time. But if you monitor it over a certain period of a time, you can discern the higher performing books from the lower performing books. This is a really important principle because oftentimes somebody's, let's say they're a traditionally published author they want to be and they're putting together their book proposal. And so they're curious, what's the best selling books in my genre so I can compare my book to those. So they go on Amazon and they see a bestseller list. But the thing is, that's the bestseller list for this hour. And it doesn't necessarily mean that those books are actually selling well. And maybe they are getting a book bub today and they're shot to the top of the list, but tomorrow they're going to be off the list and collecting this data where you're checking the list every hour and seeing what the movement is and can see who's actually selling a lot of books over time rather than just who's selling books this hour is really, really helpful. And it's almost impossible to do that manually and get good data. Yeah. Now, by no means we cannot do and wouldn't do this by the hour because it would be obviously a violation of terms of service on on Amazon. But we do visit the site periodically. And once we have a certain book, we would check back and how, especially over a longer period, how is it doing after two weeks, after four weeks, after six weeks? And then we start compiling the report and you then have a sales rank average that sort of makes sense and distinguishes the one hit wonders from those who achieve some sustainable sales. Now, once you have that, there's a very important concept behind what we do, which is easy to understand. You have a book and the book comes with a title. It comes with a cover. It comes with a book description. It comes with reviews. It comes with editorial review part of the description. And all of these parts of the text contain information. They mention characters. They sometimes mention tropes. They sometimes directly mention the genre. Sometimes they mention the type of character, like a single dad, or is it the billionaire, or is it the mafia boss? And every piece of information, mind you, is attached to that sales rank information. And by the way, a price information, which basically tells you 
If you look at what is the average sales rank of all billionaire romances that use dark covers as opposed to what is the average sales rank of all billionaire romances that uses a couple on the cover, you can clearly say what share of the books use the one and what is their average sales versus the other. And that you can do for many, many dimensions. You can look at what are the best covers. You can look at what are the best characters in cozy mystery. You know, is it the dog? Is it the cat? Or is it the witch that is the big sidekick or the big main character? Where's the location? What is the, the, the crime mentioned most often in the highest selling books? What I want to convey is there's data out there. And there's an interest on your part as the author for what you work with. Tropes, characters, worlds, genre definitions, covers, KU versus non-KU, series versus standalone books. This is your language. What we bring in is the quantitative insight to help you inform your decisions about all those things that you work with. To not make a bestseller, I would never make that claim, but I always use the phrase to increase the odds of success based on supply and demand that is out there in the reader, author, reader market. I will say, let's talk about book covers, because I think that that's really helpful to be able to have data. It's like book covers with these elements get more sales than book covers with these other elements. And being able to hand that to your designer so that you're have some information. So it's not just my opinion versus your opinion. And because what happens with a lot of authors is that they get a cover that they think is beautiful and not a cover that helps them sell co copies of the book. <laughs> and if you can give your designer some, some data that will help them get a cup design, a cover that will sell copies of the book, it'll help them give you something good, but also it helps you give better feedback. Cause often that first version of the cover is sometimes actually more effective at selling copies of the book than the version after all of your feedback. If, if you haven't studied design, right? If you don't have a professional background in design, you know how to motivate behavior. It can be really scary to give feedback uh, to a cover designer. And so being able to say, I want it to be like these books that I know, or the style of cover, it helps. It gives you safety rails. It doesn't guarantee that your bowling ball is going to knock down all the pins, but it'll keep it out of the gutter, right? <laughs> so it keeps you going straighter down the lane, so to speak. And also, I want to say another benefit is knowing just like which characteristics do I really want to emphasize? Like writing a romance, you're trying to decide between making the man in the romance a billionaire or a medical doctor, right? So like which category is a better fit? Which one's getting more sales? Is it the billionaire category or the medical category? And with Kaylytics, you can take a look and walk us through how, because it's not just a matter of like which is getting more sales. It's also a matter of which is more competitive. So how does Kaylytics help with that? If you start with a helicopter view, there's a, a certain terminology you, you have to get familiar with. I mean, you can talk about genre, and a genre definition would for me be like romance versus science fiction and fantasy or science fiction. They don't like to be lumped into one, although Amazon does. So sci-fi, fantasy, and say mystery, thriller, suspense. That's the big ones. Then you have teen young adult on Amazon, and then you have like... Uh, a whole number of nonfiction categories, say, ranging from self-help to business all the way to engineering and law. Those would be like the big 30 main, they call it, categories. And you can look at data and trends for those. And I'd say these are the mega trends. So how is romance doing vis-a-vis -vis 
mystery thriller suspense. So you can look at information at that level, which is for most of the listeners probably not so relevant because they already know, well, I'm in romance. But there are some who say, hey, I've been doing romance now for so many years. I want to have a second leg and what other things are out there to look at. So you do want to understand a bit the, the mega trends and especially when it comes to pricing information. What are the prices doing in romance overall versus mystery thriller suspense? That's the competitive side in there. Now, the next two to three levels is where it gets really interesting because all these categories come with what we call subcategories, then sub subcategories or sub sub sub, then I call them level level four and five categories where Amazon provides a very granular segmentation of the market. There are like more than 7,000 Kindle categories out there. And let me stop here real quick. When we say categories, I know some of you are like, what are you talking about? Just think genres, right? If you're like, what genre am I writing in? What genre is my book? Amazon uses the word categories. It's a more technical word. It's the same concept in the bookstore for genre. So being able to really get a precise genre and the differences between these genres is often really minor and yet it could in terms of like your story and yet it can have a huge impact in terms of sales and by the way i like the analogy if you really want to talk about book and the history of books in the book market i i would take the library terminology where you basically say well what's the aisle right what's the island what's the index card on the shelf that is what it ultimately is an aisle in the virtual shop of Amazon, whether it's so a, a bookstore or a library, books are sorted in some systemized way and they have index cards. And the, this whole technical term of categories and keywords is basically the aisles in the library and the index cards attached to the thing that the librarian has for the book. Now, once you say genre and subgenre or submarket, these things, well, these things are being sold. And anything being sold means you talk about a market. And once as an artist, you enter a market, whether you're self-published or hybrid or you're traditionally published, you operate in a market. And whether you like it or not, a market operates with a very simple law, the law of supply and demand. So every month there's books being published in some genres more than in others. And there is a number of a book repository in the library and there can be thousands of romance books but only very few books on bonsai how to grow a bonsai tree but there's also the sales side to it so what are people actually buying and spending their money on and the whole idea in Kalytics six years ago was born out of this very simple equation tell me those genres that have high sales but are hopefully not yet overcrowded and then from there, we took it to a next level. Okay, so this ratio of book supply versus demand is one factor to look at, but is it trending up or is it trending down? What is the price level there? Is it like very high priced? You may earn a lot of money if you go through these genres by just as a nonfiction example. Some of the highest priced books out there are in maritime law, right? So the specialist book for maritime law may cost you $180 or more. You don't sell many copies, while on the other end of the spectrum, you have these thousands and thousands of, of romance titles, which sell at whatever, $299, $399, promotionally $099. You get the idea, but there's, there's so many out there. 
And so it's it's a bit like, do you go for the luxury market or the mass market or the mid-tier car market? Another good example of this, about seven years ago, I was really in the market for books teaching agile project management. I was taking a company through an agile transformation and I wanted to buy all of the books on agile and it was almost impossible to find a book on agile. I would have paid almost any price for a good agile book, especially one that taught Kanban. You don't need to know what these terms are. Just know that they were really important to me. And it was really hard. And now there's a whole bunch of books that teach those things, but the average price is like 30 or $50 a book. And you know what? I would have totally paid that back then. <laughs> and so if you're wanting to write a book on business management, if it's about agile, just that element, and you're only pricing your book at 20, suddenly you're one of the cheapest books available at $20, uh, which for most novelists are like, you can't sell a book for $20. Like, well, you can't sell a romance for $20, at least not easily. But the, depending on the genre and the audience, the price can be very variable. Absolutely. And so this is where we came into this. And so it started out with a lot of people who were getting into this, this concept or buzz term of uh, right to market, which is a term which I use, but I'm not like totally fond of because people usually don't understand what writing to market is. If we just touch upon that s- subject for one second. Because many, many authors and artists will say, well, I, I, I don't want to bend myself and I don't want to write. I want to write what is my inspiration, what I have in my head, the stories or characters and worlds come to me. And I don't want to distort my art history with anything commercial. Can I just say that that is so selfish? It's such a self-centered way to approach your art. And I've said it on the show before, and I'll say it again. If you want to write the kinds of books that people want to read... You need to write the kinds of books that people already want to read. Every time I say that phrase, that's my phrase for write to market. It's it's writing the kind of book that people want to read. I like to add always three dimensions to write to market. And we'll also have it in our webinar in more detail. But the simplicity of it is the market is the market and the numbers are the numbers. But on the other thing, there's at least three things you need to bring, which is the love and passion for a genre of your choice, the specific knowledge you need to write in it with credibility and then the specific craft skills that are required for the genre in question that that is like the big three tiers that i always see and once you overlay that with the market this is where we come into play that is where a sweet spot is created that really increases the odds of success now how do you increase these odds of success you then look at markets and we we start with category data so you can start very broad or you can say, hey, I already know I'm I'm really a mystery writer and I already know I like paranormal elements. And I do know that, yeah, sometimes I do have a twist, a little bit of romance in there. My readers, which are predominantly female, they do like that. Now, from there, that is a great starting point. But this is where right to market really starts to flesh out, well, what does that really mean? What are the high-selling genres in mystery thriller suspense? Is it more women's fiction type of mystery or is it a thriller and espionage? The data will tell you. The, The next elements, well, if we talk about paranormal, what's trending now? Is it the vampires? Is it the shifters? Is it the angels? Is it the witches? The data can and category data can tell you. And once we have that, we can point you 
into a certain direction using that category data. And obviously there is always the argument. Yeah, but there's also things like category pollution and we do point to it. Yes, you have, for example, a super high trending mystery thriller suspense crime, organized crime category. But if you look into it, the whole trend is driven by mafia romance titles, which is currently a huge trend, dark mafia romance, the offshoot of billionaire romance, where the money comes not from a corporate CEO and a corporation, but shady endeavors in the drug market. So that is where you then can take it to the next level and say, well, we are really interested in, say, paranormal mystery, and we monitor the market. And then, for example, we came up this year with a specialized report on paranormal women's fiction, where we saw that some really clever big name authors who came from the very overcrowded paranormal romance market and the very overcrowded urban fantasy market, they themselves as, as authored, being women, midlife, 45 years and older, have certain challenges in their own life. And they wanted to write about these challenges and be inspiring to women of that age to and also find an audience, because if you look at the typical urban fantasy paranormal romance title, you see the leather-clad chick with sharp-edged weapons with a glow, slaying vampires at night and working at Starbucks by daylight. That is not necessarily the audience these authors want to address. So they came up with this new marketing term, paranormal women's fiction, and then we look into well, what are these covers? What are the stories? What are the evolving tropes that sell better than others? So you can start from the helicopter view. Do I want to do romance or mystery thriller suspense and what is trending in there down to, okay, I want to go more into cozy mystery versus espionage. And then you can go into the next level. What is really selling within those uh, subgenres? And get into the interesting fears on based on the numbers, start getting into genre blending that as an output has a work that may even resonate with a number of markets or give you big mega trends that you then zero in on and try to market just to the mystery readers. I love the idea of being able to use this data to identify opportunities to create new sub sub genres or new micro genres that there's a lot of demand for, right? And every overloaded genre there's room for a breakout genre to kind of extend from that genre it's kind of like a tree where branches keep splintering off of each other and or a river even maybe is a better metaphor there's all these uh, that's in a delta right and that one channel that's too big and it breaks off around a, a hill and suddenly the water's really wanting to go after that hill and 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 we're like well this why do i need this and it's like what would you rather do? Write a book blind or write a book knowing what's what the market is wanting? Right? It's like no having the information, it, even if you choose not to do it, to use it, right? You're like, I want to write the book that's on my heart. At least do that knowing what information you're ignoring, <laughs> knowing the context. Because it, even in subtle ways, it can massage your writing to make it more palatable to readers. I was uh, talking with an author, exchanging some emails a couple of weeks ago. And he didn't write to market purposefully. In fact, while he was in doing his book launch, I challenged him on it. I was like, you need to create a book that people want to read. And he's like, no, I want to write the book I want to write. And so he did his launch and it wasn't successful. <laughs> and he was really discouraged. And I was like, you, you were expecting people who didn't exist to appear. I didn't tell him this, 
but I guess I am now. You're expecting people who didn't exist to appear to, to want your book. And that's not how the world works. You have to write for people as they are. You have to write the kind of stuff that they actually want to read. And you need to know what that is, and or at least make an effort to know what that is if you want to satisfy it. I totally agree. And it also means that you are open to a concept, which I call try to be better than others, not necessarily different than others. Very often in authors and musicians and even business people, they they talk about differentiation. That's the technical term in the business world. I want to be different. I want to stand out. Yeah, but how do you want to stand out? Yeah, I just hired this cover artist and she's doing this great red cover with this yellow blob on it. It if you if you see it amongst 30 other thumbnails, it really stands out. Great. Does it communicate that it is an urban fantasy teen young adult novel? No, but it really stands out. And guess what? The cover is a total failure. The book is a total failure. Instead of seeing, well, what are the covers that let readers immediately grab for the book because they know exactly what you, uh, what they're getting. They're saying, ah, this cover tells me it's teen young adult urban fantasy and it's female protagonist. And you look at that what sells and then you try to be the best of what already sells. You, you get the idea. There is a there is a difference between differentiation being being different Versus I differentiate in the market because I'm, I do what others do, but I'm the best at it. And I'm very much in favor of the latter. If you want to get to commercial success quickly, of course, there is creativity and that should not be curtailed, but there is the creative part and there's the packaging part. Why is the Procter and Gamble washing powder commercial probably still exactly the same as it was 20 years ago. Why? Because it addresses directly the pain point and that what sells. So what you're saying is have the best cup of coffee rather than trying to be a coffee alternative, right? Trying to get people to drink Rubois tea instead of coffee is a really hard sell, right? But saying, hey, you're already drinking coffee every morning. My coffee is better than the coffee. You should try it. And if it really is the best, they'll switch to drinking your coffee. So hopefully... You're convinced now about right to market. Uh, so now let's go back to Kalytics, talk about some of the specific things that Kalytics does. And I feel like the easiest place to get started with Kalytics is a genre report. In fact, for somebody who's just getting started writing, this is probably what I'd recommend be your very first ever market research, especially if you're putting together a book proposal. It's really helpful. But if you're an indie author trying to understand what genre am I even writing in, Buying a genre report or getting access to all of them is really helpful. So walk us through what a genre report is. A genre report is basically a, a PDF-based report, so you can download it from the website. And first of all, let me say, you're not left alone with this research. They always come with a video, usually like 45 minutes in length, where I personally lead you through the research results. So how to read the data, how to interpret the data, and how, how to put it into action. Now, what are the things that are typically covered in there? The reports try to address what we found are often the questions of publishing authors across genres for like any genres, the, the typical pain points you want to solve. Now, this is not in a particular order, but starting at very practical things. So first of all, we build 
our own bestseller list because Amazon, if you type, say, Western romance into the Amazon search bar or Cozy Mystery, as I said before, you get a lot of suggestions that may change in performance in the next few hours hours, or have nothing to do with that very topic. So first of all, we create our, what do we call, our own virtual bestseller list. And in any such report, you have an, I start now at the back of the report, you have an appendix with the book descriptions of these top 100 titles that we identified. So if you just want to read what, what are others writing about or how are others selling your book, it will save you a ton of time and you wouldn't even be able to replicate it manually. But starting from the beginning, the research then looks at a number of things we already touched upon and a couple of new things. It would look into the long-term demand evolution for the genre. We look at sometimes back to the 1950s, what are the up, ups and downs in this genre using v- various sources. We've been looking at the Amazon categories for the last six years. So we can really look at some nice longer-term trends. So what are the top categories that the top books in a certain genre are using and what's been the trend is it up sideways down which ones are overcrowded which ones are still available with uh, not too many books in it then we touch upon the cover art so if you're already in launch mode uh, what is selling in that genre is it the male protagonist on the cover the couple some symbol a landscape that is all looked at based on not on opinion, but on the objective sales performance of books that make use of these covers. And because we look at so many books, once you do that analysis across, say, 500 top-selling books, you really get an idea of what works and what doesn't work. Now, there are some strategic parts in these documents where you look at, say, five-year sales trends, where you at least know, am I on the train that is accelerating or slowing down or driving right into a wall? That's when you might want to look at such a report before you actually start your book project. Or when you're already in it, well, can I make still changes to the story to tweak it more into the direction that seems to be more uptrending than downtrending? Now, away from the category data, we then start looking into all sorts of tactical things such as, well, what are high volume keywords that people on the Amazon store use to find these types of books? What are the best selling top categories that the top bestsellers make use of? Then we look at things like, if I get into this genre, is that a genre where the top 20 titles constitute almost 70% of all the sales? Or is it what I call a market that has an attractive longer tail? To give you concrete examples, there are niche markets such as role-playing game literature. I think it was two years ago when Ready Player One was the highest selling book of a whole year on Amazon. And it constituted this literature RPG or game-lit market, a really like a Niche markets by nerds for nerds. I, I hope I'm not offending anyone, but there are only few writers who are able to pull that into the mainstream. Why am I taking this example? Because that is an example where you have individual titles such as Ready Player One and a couple of other ones that got really high up in the charts. And you have like the top 10 titles really make some money. But then you have what I call, what we measure a drop off which tells you exactly, unless you're amongst those top 20, 
you're like in a oblivion. So it's not a broad market. It's an extremely narrow top end market. That's really useful to know because there are some markets where it's basically just one really popular author and readers don't go from that popular author on to other authors. Whereas there's other markets where as soon as people read all of the most popular author, they start looking for other authors to read. And if you're writing in a market and you think it's really hot when in reality it's just Ted Decker <laughs> and nobody else, then it's going to be a lot harder than if you're writing in a market where it's a whole bunch of people all together. Then we get questions by authors. Well, well, how many pages shall I write? How long a book shall I be? Can I, can I do short reads in the genre? And the data will show you exactly, no, this is not a market where short reads, which are books with 100 pages or less, less than 30,000 words, say, novellas. And no, they don't sell in the genre. And the data will show you. Of course, as, a, as an artist, you will say, if, if I have more to write, than what the genre tells me, then I write along the stories. But it's sometimes extremely interesting to see that there is a sweet spot, say exactly between 250 and 300 pages, and that's what sells the most. So gives you that tactical information. The next question you may have, well, shall I go into Kindle Unlimited or non-Kindle Unlimited? The data can clearly show you in the genre report, what is the market share of the Kindle Unlimited books? Is that the most viable channel for it? Or can you avoid it? Because it shows you there is also ample space for non-Kindle Unlimited books. I will say knowing how long your book should be is really helpful when you're writing the book, right? Like if you're writing in a genre where people are expecting 50,000 words and they will happily read book after book in a series of 50,000 words, but at 70,000 words, they lose interest and they drop off. That is the difference between pulling somebody through your series, right, where they finish your book wanting more and not, right? In some genres, people want a long book, and in other genres, they don't. And this is a really great way to know that instead of it being someone's opinion. You actually look into data and like, look, this is the length of book that readily resonates with readers. This other lengths don't resonate with readers. You can look at the sales numbers to see that. Absolutely. Uh, next question many people then have, well, what should be the price for my book? Well, we, we look at that exactly. And we, at least, well, we cannot take the decision for you what the price should be, but we can tell you exactly, well, the vast majority of the books in this particular genre are priced at, say, $3.99 when you look at the number of books. But guess what? At a certain price, you sell a certain volume or have a certain number of downloads. And the data seems to suggest that the highest yielding price point is perhaps the $4.99 price point. So this is some price insights that can be very useful, especially if you're totally new to the market and you have no clue whether you go for the $0.99 cents or the $5.99 or $4.99 price point. That comes pretty handy. And it is objective. Some parts of the report may be a bit more inspirational. So many people ask, if I want to be amongst the best in this genre, well, what are other authors? Now, of course, we can aggregate the data, not just by category or by price point or by page length bracket. We can aggregate it by author name. I always stress, and that's a big disclaimer, since we don't monitor for such a study, the market like 24 hours a day over 365 days a year, we, we're not producing like the authoritative ranking for say, cozy mystery. No, we don't. But we produce annual reports. And since in many of these, we have now the fifth or even sixth 
edition, it's very interesting to see. We see author names that are always in the list year in, year out. We list those authors with the links to their author pages, and it saves you a lot of time if you're looking for inspiration or even, by the way, sources of collaboration, because we also look at who are the indie authors out there versus the hybrid or traditionally published author. So you can reach out to people. You can look at their books, their portfolios. It's a great source of information that otherwise would take you hours and weeks to compile. And since you will never have the picture of a year in, year out, you probably will never get to the essence of that information without such a report. Same for publisher names. And then once you have all this and you are already in the writing project, we get to something where I think the boundary between data and creativity really starts to blend and, and cross over, where we use text mining, which is a nice technical term for looking for specific words and phrases that show up more than one time in the titles and book descriptions and associate those words and phrases with the sales ranks. And that allows you to then go into things like, well, if you are in Cozy Mystery, what are the most popular characters or animals? Or if you are in, say, Second Chance Romance, what is the highest selling male character? Is it, is it a cowboy? Is it a, a businessman? Is it a single dad? You, you name it. I'm looking at the report right now for urban fantasy and demon is a much more popular word in book titles than dragon, which breaks my heart because me personally, I'd go for the dragon books. But what this is showing is that demon uh, or demons as a villain is a more resonant villain to people right now. That makes more sense than dragon. That's very interesting to know from a commercial point of view, but also from the point of view, it is fairly easy to adjust, right? I, I mean, you don't necessarily have to rewrite the whole book if you can tweak those things, where sometimes authors even approach me. It's almost like search and replace. Well, obviously you have to then re-edit the book and there is work in, involved. But you get the idea, even if you're already Within a project, you say, I should really, in epic fantasy, talk a little bit more about gods and dragons and elves these days than I should talk about ravens, wolves, and goblins. That's a very good insight to have because the difference between those is huge from a sales point of view. So we're going through this report, and I should say that you get the PDF, which you can go through on your own, but you also get a video of you kind of walking through and explaining the PDF. And I find that, especially if you're first getting started, PDF is really helpful. And they come together in the bundles. So when you buy the market report, you get the PDF and you get the bundle. And you get walked through all of this information, which just gets the creative juices flowing in the right direction and help you realize, oh, okay, goblins aren't a good villain right now. <laughs> like, good to know. Or you know what, I'm going to put a goblin in my book anyway, but I know I'm going to have to really write the very best goblin book ever because the goblins as an antagonist aren't going to help me out when it comes to getting sales. And you're going into that kind of with your eyes open. And that can give you such a boost in your creative productivity. I had people tell me once I looked at the data and got even these couple and few creative impulses of do a bit more of this and less of that, it immediately sparked ideas and 
get more fluidity into the writing because you do what you do with confidence and you know what to shoot for it. And also with your cover design, let's have this type of cover. It saves you so much time and effort and energy. My accounting teacher always said there's no accounting for taste and there isn't. <laughs> so if you, if you inform the decision with some numbers, it can solve you a lot of headaches and you can focus the discussions at the dinner table with your family on much more productive things uh, than should it be red or blue. So we're almost out of time, but I do want to talk about trends uh, real quick. So let's talk about some of the big trends that you've noticed of things that are happening uh, in recent times. And then, of course, I should mention Alex and I are going to be doing a webinar on September 2nd at 2 p.m. Central Time 2021. For those of you listening in the future, we'll have a link for those of you who want to come live. And for those of you listening in the future, we'll have a link for the replay where we'll dive into more specific trends and we'll let you as the people who come live uh, pick what what trends you're curious about or what genres but kind of broad market alex what are you seeing in this 2021 post 2020 world <laughs> first of all the big picture the helicopter view post covid or i don't know whether one can ever say post covid but <laughs> you get the idea after 15 months of this terminal out there the climate for books is still great the book market just has been, and especially the ebook market, has been and still is a big beneficiary of this whole crisis out there. We just looked at the numbers. We, we had already more than 20% growth, 25% growth in the ebook market, especially on the Amazon Kindle platform last year. We looked at the first six months of 2020, and we're all still projecting a high double digit growth for 2021. And these projections after half a year have become pretty reliable. So it's a great economic environment out there for books because people still read. Obviously, people now go out more. The total growth has declined a little bit. But, but tell me one industry that, apart from home fitness equipment, that has a you know solid double-digit growth rate. So the environment is still great. And when you say growth has declined, it's still growing. It's just not growing as fast. This is a pet peeve I have with, with journalists. They'll make this big story about growth declining, and they make it sound like a market is shrinking when it's still growing. It's just growing slightly slower than it was last year. And it's growing tremendously. I, I shouldn't have used this phrase. We're talking about the growth is declining from 25% in 2020 to something like 18% this year. And I think that's just a tremendous growth number. So which genres were the biggest beneficiaries of this big lifestyle change, right? So everybody's lives are different now, or most everyone's lives are different now than they were before. So I imagine certain stories are resonating more than others. So who are the winners and who are the losers? Well, there, there's a lot to that story. Let me start with saying that overall, the big fiction genres, they, they have all won. The trend over the last 15 to 18 months has been positive. So romance has increased in sales. We've seen it in very stable and good sales for uh, mystery, thriller, suspense. Now, in sci-fi and fantasy, overall, the sales have really seen a very strong uptick ever since last July, after, by the way, a, a downward trend. Now, within, for example, sci-fi, you really have to, and fantasy, you have to differentiate. We see a real uptrend, for example, after a downtrend in hard science fiction, perhaps the sequel to The Martian. It's not a sequel, it's a separate 
book by Andy Wire, but that probably helped the whole hard sci-fi genre. Whilst others in sci-fi and fantasy, if you look at the especially more dire reads, darker reads, dystopian, post-apocalyptic, well, surprise, surprise, obviously they have lost market share. Horror has lost tremendously in market share and more uplifting reads across categories, whether it's romantic comedy or humorous read or very escapist fantasy type of literature. That is what has gained a lot. And where you had an overlay of some of the kids not only watching Netflix and YouTube, some teens and young adults have actually been reading more as well. Where you have that over with an overlap with something that has been growing per se during the pandemic, such as teen, young, adult, paranormal and urban fantasy. We've just seen a 98 sales rank improvement in the category over the last 12 months. So that's really fascinating, the dark versus the light. And it totally makes sense, right? People are like, real life is dark and scary enough. I don't want more of it in the books that I'm reading. I'm wanting uh, to escape, right, from depressing news and sad things and going on in the world. I, I want something that's light and fluffy uh, compared to kind of the halcyon time that we had in the 20 teens where the economy is roaring and people are feeling good and they're looking for maybe some darker, grittier stuff. They're, they're wanting that damn, you know, post-apocalyptic story. They're wanting that dystopian story. Whereas nowadays, it totally makes sense that people would want to break from that. And they're not wanting just more of the same. Exactly. And, and especially in those areas where we have a match between something that has already been trending down for other reasons. The pandemic was then just an accelerator of the decline. Take horror, for example. You had... This big 10-year trend of zombie horror fiction on the, on the back of The Walking Dead. So you had a, a bit like an end of an era, zombie horror dystopia, uh, post-apocalyptic fiction going down on top the pandemic hits. And you're not interested in more catas- catastrophes and, and post-apocalyptic worlds out there. And you get this double whammy effect. And that's where we really see some of these darker genres take a dive. Well, I want to dive more into these trends. Uh, We're going to do it in this webinar. You can come live at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time, which uh, shout out to Alex, who's going to be staying up late in Switzerland. (laughs) This is his time uh, to do 2 p.m. Central Time. And we'll have the replay. We'll have a voting system where people can ask questions and vote on each other's questions. We'll give you a, a tour of Kalytics there. If you're wanting to check out Kalytics, if you can't wait, we will have links in the show notes at authormedia.com. Just go click on those show notes. I have affiliate links if you want to get any of his paid resources. I think you also have some free uh, reports that you put out as well, if I'm not mistaken, or you do free webinars from time to time. Absolutely. Yeah. So depending on how much information you want, he's got all the different levels and it's k-lytics.com, not Kalytics without the hyphen. So I realize. That's not a super podcast-friendly URL. (laughs) So if you need help, just go to authormedia.com. It's easy to spell. And we'll also have the link to sign up for the webinar, which, again, 2 p.m. on September 2nd, 2021. So almost got all the twos, but not quite. So anyway, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. I have to thank you. Bye for now, and see you hopefully in the webinar or the replay. Our featured patron today is Mike Minoski, author of The Job Search Manifesto. This book is a step-by-step approach to job hunting 
acing that interview, negotiating the raise you deserve, and making the career moves that will bring you to where you want to be. Mike Kaminoski, thank you so much for becoming a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast and for supporting the show. And do correct me if I'm getting your name wrong. And if you would like to become a patron of Novel Marketing, you can do so at authormedia.com slash patron. And if you can't afford to financially support the show, but you still want to help out, you can just tell a friend about this podcast. And I do hope to see you at the webinar. You can find out more about the webinar, of course, at authormedia.com. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, blog post by Shauna Lettler, and I am Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host. To find the blog version of this podcast, go to authormedia.com forward slash 294. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.